Hi, I'm Marika Walsh, filling in for Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Since 2011, nearly a dozen mass murderers in Canada have been handed life sentences that barred them from parole consideration for at least 50 years. Last week, the Supreme Court struck down the law allowing that. In a unanimous decision, the justices said jailing people for life with no hope of parole amounted to cruel and unusual punishment. The decision points to the tension at the heart of the system. How do you balance punishment with rehabilitation? And where do the rights of victims and their families fit in? The court has been solid in rejecting certain Harper-era laws and setting down certain principles, which will be very hard to overcome. Sean Fine is The Globe's justice writer and has been reporting on the top court for decades. He's here to unpack the ruling and where it goes next. You're listening to The Decibel. Hi, Sean. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Marika. It's great to be here. Can you take us back a little bit? Before Friday, how did sentencing work for mass murderers in Canada? Well, it depends how far back you want me to go. In 1976, Canada abolished capital punishment, and they decided to set a mandatory life penalty for first-degree murder with no parole hearing for 25 years. And for second-degree murder, the judge would set parole eligibility at 10 to 25 years. When Stephen Harper's government came along, they decided in 2011 to change the system for mass killers. The reason they gave was they wanted each life to be valued, each life lost to be recognized in law and in punishment. So they said if you kill more than one person, they will authorize judges to stack up those parole periods of ineligibility. So if you killed, let's say, two people, first-degree murder, the judge could give 25 plus 25 ineligibility for the life sentence. So what we had in the case Friday was uh, Alexandre Bissonnette, who killed six uh, Muslim worshippers at a mosque in Quebec City in 2017. And because he killed six, the Crown asked for life with no parole hearing for 150 years. To be clear, when you're talking about when someone is eligible for parole, what does that mean about how long their sentence actually is? So the court emphasized that a parole hearing does not mean a right to actual parole. It just means a chance at making your case. Now, not everybody who is eligible will actually get it. And because it's a life sentence, some killers, particularly multiple killers, will never be released. Clifford Olson died in prison. Paul Bernardo will almost certainly die in prison. So there are people who will not ever get out. And so looking forward now with the decision from the Supreme Court, how does it change how people who commit multiple murders are actually sentenced? Let me just say that I want people to appreciate how dramatic an event this was, this ruling on Friday, because we had a ruling that's completely different from how things work in the U.S., and we had all nine judges agree to it. Five of the nine judges on the Supreme Court were appointed by Stephen Harper uh, and his conservative government, and four of the nine were appointed by Justin Trudeau and his liberal government. And they all came together on this. And the ruling said that a sentence that is effectively life without parole cannot stand in Canada. It is against our values. Why? Because it is contrary to human dignity to deny people even a chance at 
a second chance. And so in the United States, they have the death penalty, of course. We don't. As I said, we abolished it uh, decades ago. They also have life without parole. Almost every state in the U.S. has it. I believe Alaska is the only one that does not. And 56,000 people in the United States are serving life without parole. Also, up until 2012, let's say, they had it for juveniles. People who committed their crimes as juveniles could go down forever. So I'm indicating to you how different our system is, and it's a system of values. And so a lot of people I've spoken to about this are quite upset by the ruling, and they say, you know, how does it make sense that someone who kills 6 or 10 or 15 get the same sentence as someone who kills one? And what the court said is that the people may deserve something stronger, but this is really about the limits on what a government can do to punish. And in that sense, we're more in line with certain European jurisdictions that the court mentioned, such as Germany, France, and Italy, than we are with the U.S. So in a way, this ruling was controversial with the public, maybe, but as you said, it was unanimous. Was there anything else from the decision from the court that struck you, that stood out to you? Well, yes. The court did not say that that 25-year period, that former ineligibility period, well, the period that they restored, that there was anything magic about it. They said, in fact, that if the government wants to go beyond it and redo the law, it can. It has to stick within the parameters that the court set out. And those parameters are that they don't want to see someone sentenced for their whole life. So I I can be, I'll I'll be just a little bit more specific on that. Anyone who gets 25 times two in eligibility, that would be seen as a whole life sentence. Why? Because the youngest you can be is 18 to be sentenced under that old law. And 18 plus 50, 68. And Chief Justice Wagner himself said that, look, uh, the average for people who serve long terms, they don't live past 60 years old. So if you're sentenced to 68 at at minimum, you're not going to ever get out. So the government could rewrite the law, and I will be interested to see what the liberals do. Yeah, and so far, Justice Minister David Lametti has been pretty circumspect in any next steps that the government might take, but we are hearing reaction from others. How does it impact families of victims and victims' groups to see this decision from the court? Well, for families of victims, it will be very difficult because in our parole system, families have the right to go to the hearings. And the hearings come at you now with the Supreme Court restoring the old system. They'll come at the 25-year mark for the first time, and then they come fairly regularly after that. So uh, in Bissonnette's case, for instance, we're about 20 years away. So the family has to start preparing for that. Now, I had a very interesting reaction from uh, Tim Danson, who represented the families of Paul Bernardo's victims, families of Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. And what he said, and this is a man who has represented victims and victims groups for 40 years, he said that he actually thinks that the, the ruling caught something quintessential about Canadian values. Also, I should mention that the National Council of Canadian Muslims, whom I spoke to, they did not criticize the decision. They just said it was going to be hard on the families. Sean, it seems to me from the discussion since the ruling that there is a tension between the rights of victims and their families and the rights of criminals and a question of whether the court has struck the right balance in that. Can you speak to that at all about that debate that's now happening? 
Sure. Well, that that's an old debate. Stephen Harper tried to get it going, and he, in his many uh, reforms to the system, he argued for a rebalancing of the system between uh, victims and what you know criminals are accused. But in our system, victims work within parameters. So when they give a victim impact statement, for instance, they're not allowed to come forward and say, this is the sentence I want to see. Whereas in the U.S., in death penalty cases, they usually go over a period of 20 years before an execution, and, and victims' families come to hearings and over and over basically cry for blood. Our system is completely different. And remember, in our system, it's not between the victim and the criminal or the accused, it is between the state representing the people and the accused. So the victim is not a direct party, as horrible as that may seem to say. Mm-hmm. You mentioned in your response about the response from, from a lawyer who represents victims, that it speaks to the nature of Canada's criminal justice system. Can you elaborate a bit more on that? What is the balance that is being struck here? So we have sentencing principles that were created by government in the criminal code, and some of them are deterrence, denunciation, and rehabilitation. And what the court said was that it is all right for government to stress deterrence and denunciation for a particular crime like mass murder. Of course it is. But they said that in this law, as it was with the 25-year ineligibility period, it was already stressed. But they said the new law that, that the Harper government wrote uh, denied even the possibility of rehabilitation. And they said, you have to leave the door open. That was their quote for rehabilitation. It doesn't have to be primary or even equal to the other, those other principles, but, it, but the door has to be left open. Can you put some context or a bit more context around what you mentioned at the beginning of our chat, speaking about becoming eligible for parole? Where do we see rehabilitation actually happen with mass murderers, or do we see that happen in Canada? Is this eligibility for parole really um, an unattainable option for this group of criminals? We don't really know if it's unattainable. I was told by uh, Mr. Bissonnette's lawyer uh, that uh, there have been cases of mass killers who have gotten out. He didn't mention names. Uh, the ones I'm familiar with, uh, I can't imagine ever getting out. And we do have prisoners dying in jail, not just killers. If you take this case in itself, horrible case, it was a hate killing. Can he be rehabilitated? Some people are horrified at the idea that he might ever get out. I mean, he might be a, a public danger and the easiest way out is to just close the door on him. I'll just tell you what the defense uh, forensic uh, psychiatric experts said about Bissonnette. They said he's not a psychopath. He committed his horrible crime uh, at the age of 27 under mental illness and under the spell of various terrorism websites and hate-mongering websites. Even the Crown experts said, well, he might have a, a borderline personality disorder that might diminish over time. And only with basically lifelong commitment to therapy in prison would he have a chance to, to make it. And what the court said, the Quebec Court of Appeals said, was we can't sit here and say 25 or 50 years down the road in this case for people like Bissonnette what he's going to be like. So I, I wouldn't close the door. Interesting. One of the elements that's also out there in terms of our sentencing system 
is the concept of a dangerous offender designation, which Paul Bernardo has, for example. Can you um, elaborate at all about whether this ruling impacts that designation and how those all intersect? Yeah, well, Paul Bernardo has that designation because not because he killed three people, but because he was a serial rapist. So dangerous offender designation is not available to killers. Life is seen as a, the toughest penalty. And um, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about this, partly because of the Bernardo case. So for the killings he did, he got life. For being a serial rapist, he got dangerous offender. And the dangerous offender law created an important precedent for this ruling, for the BCNet ruling. And that is because if you're a dangerous offender, you are eligible for parole after seven years. People don't realize this. And then if you don't get it, you're eligible every two years after that, there's another hearing that comes around. So people think, oh, if you're a dangerous offender, you're gone for life. Well, it's indeterminate, but they can release you, and some of them have been released. And the precedent that was set was a number of years ago, there's a Supreme Court ruling where someone challenged the dangerous offender law to say, you know, they're going to hold me forever. Uh, that's not fair. And the court said, because this law contains the option of release, that there is a regular review, it is therefore constitutional. And that came up in Bissonnette, because in Bissonnette, they want to make sure there was a possibility of a meaningful review. One of the names that's come up a lot in, in our discussion is Stephen Harper, who, as prime minister, brought in a lot of these tough-on-crime laws, particularly after his majority mandate in 2011, that, as your reporting has articulated in the last few years, have often been struck down by the Supreme Court. I'm wondering what this ruling says overall about those laws. What, what Mr. Harper did uh, in various laws strikes me as not anywhere near what they do in the U.S., but within our system, our system of values and our traditions, uh, the Supreme Court decided many of them just did not fit. So, for example, uh, there's this uh, supervised injection clinic in Vancouver called Insight. And the Harper government was really keen to close that down because people were shooting up legally, shooting up illegal drugs. And they tried to close it down, and the Supreme Court ruled nine to nothing. You could not do that. The government does not have the right to kill people. And by closing it down, that would put people at risk of dying. The court said no. Uh, There's another one on um, mandatory minimum sentences for illegal gun possession. The mandatory minimum was just three years. And again, the court, this time it was six to three, said, no, that mandatory minimum is cruel and unusual punishment. So they really set some strict parameters. And then this, this case is just another example of that. And so any government that wants to um, go further and try to uh, trot on that territory that Mr. Harper did would know that there are limits and you're going to run up against this thing. So you can either try to you work within those parameters or challenge the court again. I mean, there have been cases before of uh, governments throwing laws back in the court's face. But the court has been solid in rejecting certain Harper-era laws and setting down certain principles, which will be very hard to overcome. And so we now have a liberal government. We haven't heard very much yet from them on what they will do or if they will do anything in response to the Supreme Court decision read the tea leaves for us a bit. What what are you expecting from them? And could they bring in a new law to raise the 
the eligibility length for parole? I don't see it being a priority for this government, uh, you know, unless something dramatic happens. I mean, who knows what, what can happen down the road in terms of some horrible mass killing or something. But, you know, it's not their sweet spot. They'd rather just leave these things quiet. So I, I don't necessarily see them doing anything on it, but I've been wrong before. They might not do something on it, but we could see the Conservatives try to bring it back to the political debate in the middle of a leadership. We've seen Pierre Polyev and Patrick Brown, both considered front runners in the leadership race, suggest they would bring this struck down law back by invoking the notwithstanding clause. I guess we know it's possible, but talk to us about what that would mean and what the significance of that would be in Canada. Well, I do think that would be a frontal attack on the Charter to try to opt out of a ruling on a on cruel and unusual punishment. That is the country's top court saying that this is so inimical to our values as a country that it can't stand. If they were to do that, they would end up battling on a larger issue of what is the Supreme Court and what is the Charter of Rights. And, and the invocation of the notwithstanding clause would have to be renewed every five years. So it would be a chronic issue, may not be a winner, uh, but because the court said you can go beyond the 25 years, I could see them rewriting the law. It's a great wedge issue for the Conservatives. And for that reason, maybe we, we would see the Liberals try to steal the ground from under them. I don't know. And Sean, just to zoom out on the big picture and the significance of this ruling from Friday, it was 1976 that Canada eliminated the death penalty. Does this ruling mark a similarly important turning point in Canada's criminal justice system? Uh, well, I think it's a very important point because what the court has said is that life without parole is inimical to our values. And by saying that, they imply that the death penalty also would be inimical. I mean, what they said was the door has to be left open for rehabilitation. And obviously, if there's an execution, the door is closed. But to zoom out, uh, yeah, I mean, the court has said pretty strongly, here are the limits to what governments can do. You know, they never said that uh, holding someone for life is disproportionate. They said it is proportionate to the crime, but they said that you still can't do it. That's a pretty strong statement of what our country stands for, according to the Supreme Court. Sean, a fascinating discussion and one that I don't think ends here. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you again for having me. That's it for today. I'm Marika Walsh. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. David Crosby edits the show, Kasia Mihailovic is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening.